the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Christmas time is a unique time of year, as we all know, and even more special for the believing Christian. There are a lot of songs. There are a lot of forms of decoration. There are a lot of even passages in the Bible that we read especially during this time, and many of them only during this time. When it comes to celebrating Christmas, the birth of the baby Jesus, it is most common to look at passages such as Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 2 that Chris just read for us. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 18 through 23. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Follow along as I read verses 18 through 23 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Verse 23 is very important because this is a prophecy, and it's a very unique prophecy, a prophecy that entailed details about the Messiah about the coming of Jesus Christ that were so unique they had to be miraculous. First, a virgin to be with child, physically impossible outside of a miracle of God. And of course, for his very name to be God with us or Emmanuel. And as we read this whole birth narrative, as much as this means to us as believers and as eager as we are to celebrate Christmas every year, and I was just mentioning to the kids in the children's message that perhaps they've not just been waiting since Thanksgiving or since December began for Christmas to come. Perhaps they've been waiting since December 26th of last year, waiting an entire year. But could you imagine, especially this year, 
as perhaps many of us were eagerly waiting for this time to be able to celebrate in the midst of all that's going on in our country and in our world. But a few weeks, even a few months, is really nothing if you can imagine yourself being an Old Testament believer, a Jew, a member of the nation of Israel, a chosen of God's people that lived thousands of years ago. Waiting not for Christmas Day to celebrate with the salvation that already is yours, but awaiting the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior, the coming of the King. Living your entire life and being told that God will send a king, a descendant of Abraham, born into the royal bloodline of David, from the day you could walk. You are being taught that by your parents. You are being taught that by the Scriptures. You are being taught that by the rabbis. And you are living for God. You are following His many, many excruciatingly detailed laws. Perhaps, depending on when you lived, suffering as a slave in Egypt or in captivity for the sins of your people. One experience after another. You see, we sometimes look back at people like this and we say, well, they're defined by Abraham. They're defined by their captivity. They're defined by certain instances. But each and every single one of those millions upon millions of people, they live lives like you. Every day was a new day of work. Every day was a new challenge. Every day was a new experience. And in all of those thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of experiences that each human being lives through his life, Underlying all of that was an expectation, a waiting, an anticipation, perhaps even a frustration. Where is the Messiah? Is the Messiah going to come? Life after life, day after day, but no Messiah. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months, which turn into years, which turn into decades. And at the end of your life, on your bed, with your children and grandchildren surrounded you, telling them one last time after the thousands of times you have told them, stay alert for the coming of the Messiah. And then they would continue the process after you had died. And your decades turn into generations which turn into millennia still. No. Messiah. The waiting the anticipation, the frustration was real because the coming of the king was clear to the nation of Israel. There are over 350 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Over 350 descriptive promises of the man we know as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even the passage that we just read, Again, popular, especially this time of year, Matthew chapter 1, includes a prophecy to make clear that this child, this child born to Mary, was the one. Let me read for you Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and perhaps it will sound familiar. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. God with us. Now, some of these 300 plus prophecies 
speak of the death and ministry of Jesus Christ. Many of them we know are prophecies only because in hindsight we have seen Jesus Christ fulfill them. Excuse me. Some speak of his birth. Most speak of his power, his ministry, and his rejection, either in specifics, many specifics about how he would die, what would happen as he was being crucified, many others just general but specific enough that we know that they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Some of the more general prophecies can be attributed to the overarching characteristics that underlie both his birth and his ministry. They pertain to both. They pertain to who he is. For example, and don't turn there, I'm just going to run through these. Genesis 3.15 tells us that he would be human. Because God tells Adam and Eve that, specifically Eve, that her progeny would crush the head of the serpent. Daniel 7.13 tells us that he would be a son of man, as we know was a title of Jesus Christ, is a title of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2.7 tells us that he is, would be for them, the son of God the Father, son of God. In regards to his abilities and his ministry in particular, I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Join me in Isaiah chapter 35. And we'll look at verses 5 and 6. Let me read those for you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for the waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Now keep your finger there and turn back with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to chapter 11. As Jesus grew up and was in the period of his public ministry, which we estimate to be about three and a half years, people started to question who he was, especially in the beginning. As you know, by this time, most of the Jews had been led astray. They had uh, burdens put on their shoulders and on their backs, which Jesus condemned because it was done by the Jewish leaders, specifically the Pharisees, the Sadducees. But there were some who were waiting. There were some who were looking. There were some who were faithful. And specifically, the disciples of Christ's assigned forerunner, John the Baptist, come to him while their leader, John, was in prison. And in Matthew 11, verses 2 through 5, they come to him and we read this scene. Now, when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. And then he quotes, indicating his personal fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
he doesn't say, I am him. He quotes the passages that John the Baptist was looking for. You see, those who understood Old Testament prophecies, they weren't just looking for someone who said, hey, I'm the Messiah. They were looking for fulfillment of prophecy. And that's why Jesus says, tell John what you see. And John the Baptist immediately would know, ah, the prophet Isaiah said this would occur when the Son of God, when the Son of Man has arrived. This is Him. He's finally here. The King has come. Some of the other prophecies that were fulfilled, again, there's over 350 of them, so we're just really scratching the surface. But these are ones that you would be, I believe, more familiar with in understanding uh, both the Christmas story as well as the Easter story. They're fulfilled but aren't specifically about His birth. They're familiar to us again about His time on earth. And again, don't bother turning. I'm going to run through these really quickly. Zechariah 9.9 tells us He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, which we read about in Matthew 21. Specifically, verses 4 through 10 is the whole scene. Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9 tells us not only would he be betrayed, but that, be, that betrayal would be done by a friend. And we know that the Gospels tell us that. John 13, 18 is one instance. Again, Zechariah chapter 11, but verse 12, that his, this betrayal would be for 30 pieces of silver. Very exact, very specific. And we know that Judas took 30 pieces of silver, Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. The next verse in Zechariah, Zechariah 11, verse 13, tells us that those pieces of silver would be used to purchase the potter's field, which we have mention of in Matthew 27. Isaiah 53, verse 9, tells us that he would actually die, but he would die with criminals. But... Despite dying with criminals, his burial would be with the wealthy. Luke 23:33 tells us that he had a criminal on either side of him also being crucified alongside him. Matthew 27 verses 57 through 60 tells us of his burial in the in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Remember he wanted to donate to give his tomb this rich man this large tomb to the body of Jesus Christ. Here's a great one, a familiar one. Perhaps not the verses, but what the verses say. In in Psalm 22, a great messianic psalm, in verses 1, 8, and 18, we read that he would say these words, My God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? We are told that he would be mocked. We are told even that people would gamble for his clothes, all recorded for us in Matthew chapter 27. This and hundreds more, what does this all mean? It means that the days, the weeks, the years, the generations, the millennia have come to an end. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, has come. And with these prophecies fulfilled and the ones I have mentioned laid as a foundation for our understanding and our celebration of Christmas, 
I want to look at the importance of these and other prophecies in relation to our life in Christ. Yes, as part of our celebration this week culminating on Friday, December 25th, but for the entirety of our lives, of our Christian lives. And my friends, if you are joining us this morning because it is a Christmas service, but you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I hope that you will listen because what I am about to explain to you and what I have explained to you proves to us, shows to us that this isn't just limited to one time a year. This is not just some guy, some thing that we as Christians worship. He came as a fulfillment of predictions for thousands of years which have not been proven wrong. They have been proven right and fulfilled in a specific individual. If you are Jewish and you have been waiting for the Messiah, it is not too late to turn to Him because understand that your own prophets have shown that He came 2,000 years ago. Well, for the Christian this morning, I want to give you three statements of prophetic significance for the Christian life. Three statements of prophetic significance for the Christian life. The first statement is this, and I'll repeat it. I'll repeat all of them as they're a bit long. The celebration of the birth of Christ only has meaning because of the death of Christ. The celebration of the birth of Christ only has meaning because of the death of Christ. Historically, though it is a very short history, in the life of our church, Grace Church of the Bay Area, outside of today when we have met in person for our Christmas service, there are inevitably uh, a lot of visitors who come and visit our church specifically uh, on that Sunday, um, just keeping with a tradition perhaps they grew up with in attending a Christmas service and perhaps later on or earlier in the year an Easter service. And that being said, I think a lot of times, especially our visitors, uh, are surprised at what I say uh, because we want to celebrate this little baby, which we do and which we are and which is what I'm talking about. But you have to understand that those nativity scenes, those Christmas cards, those Christmas ornaments, those pictures of that little baby, yes, innocent, yes, fragile, yes, helpless, an innocent little baby, the birth of the king, makes no sense if you don't fast forward about 30 years to his ministry. And those three and a half years still make absolutely no sense in the entirety of the Bible and the plan of God if it were not for his crucifixion. It is complete. We have things that we do in our lives, usually in our careers, that in and of themselves make sense. Inventors, captains of industry, 
people who do certain things that change the course of our culture in terms of technology and understanding and politics or whatever it may be. And once they're out of office, once they're retired, all the, everything else that they've invented doesn't really go anywhere. They are known for that one thing. And that one instance, that one day, that one session, meeting, decision, product defines their life. And we don't care about them now. Maybe we'll Google where are they now just because we're curious. But it really doesn't matter. For Jesus Christ, the significance of His birth is connected to the entirety of His earthly life. And both of those bookends, in terms of His time on earth, only make sense when you have that never-ending arrow on each side in that He is God and has lived in eternity past and will live for eternity future. And so... The celebration of the birth of Christ only has meaning because of the death of Christ. And we know this not only because of the gospel, but because of the many, many prophecies about his death specifically. The most prolific one being Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, I'd like you to turn there with me. This is so clearly about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is even for the unbeliever, even for the one who accepts the Old Testament but rejects the New Testament. Even they know that this is talking about Jesus Christ, so much so that traditionally and historically, rabbis have skipped from Isaiah 52 to Isaiah 54 their own prophet. Look at verses 1 through 11. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Stop there. We understand this. The birth of Christ, not in terms of power, but it kind of came in a whimper, with a whimper. It came in secret. There was nothing special about his human form, his human state. Mary's pregnancy was not shorter. It was full term. The pain involved was the same. Jesus Christ was not born as a baby and started walking or talking on day one. He, by his own choice, became a human being and went through the stages of growth. He looked like any other Jew. He did not stand out in his form or his appearance. And he grew up just like all of us have physically. Look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Understand that we're talking about the creator of the universe. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore 
and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. When you go back to verse 4, our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. This is not just some mystical, as we say uh, this time of year, as we just sung, joy to the world because this baby was born and somehow that just makes us happy because he was a special baby. No. That joy, that bearing our griefs and our sorrows was because he died for them. Because he gave us hope for eternity, a sinless life. And then verse 5, or verse 6 rather. Why all of this? Because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Sound familiar? At the trial, do you not hear these accusations and you say nothing? Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? In other words, who was supposed to be beaten? Who was supposed to be punished? God's people. And yet, my son, God the Father says, was the one who was cut off because of the transgressions of the people. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. We just talked about that, crucified. By the way, crucifixion was reserved for those the Romans considered subhuman the greatest of criminals. Yet, and we saw this earlier as well, he was with a rich man in his death, the grave, the tomb, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Sinless. God, very God. Verse 10, But the Lord was pleased, pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. There it is. Right? The offerings, the physical offerings that the Jews would have to offer up to God and killing and burning the animals because of the guilt of their sin. Jesus Christ was the perfect and final guilt offering. We continue. He will see his offering, offspring, rather. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify, declare right, justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Christians, you are declared righteous, pure, holy, sanctified, set apart, sins covered, sin paid for, white as snow, before the eyes of God the Father, your judge, the God of wrath, not because Jesus was born but because Jesus was born and then was crucified for your sins. Verse 10, the big question, 
who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Uh, Was it the Jewish system? It was God. It was God pleased to crush him. Why? Because he loves us that much. Because our sin grieves him that much. Let me pull this all together. In the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that it contains, including mankind. Man, Adam and Eve were created to be the height of creation, and we still are, to have dominion over the earth and the animal kingdom. But the big problem was that tree. That tree. They wanted to eat of the fruit and thereby disobeyed God, which we call sin. And in that sin, when they ate of what we know as the forbidden, for, forbidden fruit, thereby violating God's command, God's will, it could have been anything. It didn't have to be that tree. Anything God told them to do if they didn't do it or anything God said they couldn't do and they did it would have been sin. And suddenly, though there were only two people at the time, sin flooded the earth into their souls, into their lives, and then exploded over the animal kingdom and nature as we know it. Everything is stained with sin. The trees, the rocks, the oceans, as gorgeous as they are, they don't look the way they're supposed to because they are stained with sin. That's why even the rocks cry out. And so, just like as when you violate any sort of law, as a child you break a law in your parents' home, you get punished. You break a law in our society and you're caught, you get punished. When mankind and Adam and Eve, anyone, breaks a law, God's law, they are punished. They're always caught because God sees all and the punishment is death. And we see the physical death and that death came and right after that is when Adam and Eve saw their nakedness They were naked before. They didn't care before, but now they had sin. They had an understanding of that this was not right. It wasn't wrong until they sinned. Now it's wrong. And so the first death was God killing an animal to cover their nakedness with the skins of that animal. Before that, animals weren't killed. And so physical death entered the world. And notice who it was who killed first ever. God. Why? Killed to cover the guilt of Adam and Eve. That stains us. Regardless of what your view is of when life begins at the moment of conception, not birth, conception, you are a sinner. And given the choice anyways, you would choose sin It's not just murders, it's not just rapes, even a white lie is a sin and breaks the will, the character of God, and you are deserving of eternal punishment in hell. All men sin, and there's a problem. Nobody can earn a perfect life. No one can live a perfect life and earn their way into heaven. That's why God had to send the perfect punishment, but He wanted to send the perfect punishment sacrifice that would cover not just that individual sins, 
but one who would cover the sins of the world, and so that person had to be sinless. How is that possible? Only if that human being was also God, enter Jesus Christ. And in order to die as a human, in order for God who cannot die to actually die a physical death, he had to live as a human being, not to uh, go into a pre-existing body, but to be conceived in the womb of a human mother, to grow from cells to a fully formed baby, to be born, to grow up, to wrestle with his brothers, to cry, to have his diaper chained, to learn to be potty trained, to learn how to eat solid food, learn how to speak, all of that, all the time being God, so he would be 100% human and 100% God, again, to grow up and then to die for the sins of the world, but you're not covered yet. The Bible says you need to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and was raised on the third day, proving that He is God, proving that He conquered death and sin. Accept Him as your Lord and Savior. Turn from your sin. Again, you won't be perfect, but that means turn from your sinful ways of life, turning to Jesus Christ, making Him your Lord instead of yourself, the world, society, your desires to please man, whatever it may be and you will be saved. And you see why and how the entirety of the life of Jesus Christ is important, not just for us, but for you and for the world. And so when we look at prophecy, we understand that the celebration of the birth of Christ as prophesied has meaning only because of the death of Jesus Christ as prophesied. Statement number two, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Emmanuel is continued with the Holy Spirit and Christ's presence. The fulfillment of the prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us, is continued with the Holy Spirit and Christ's presence. We saw this earlier, that term Emmanuel, which means God with us in Isaiah 7.14, a prophecy that he would be physically with us as a human being and fulfilled as we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Yes, God was with us, the world, with an earthly, physical, human presence, but he left. Yes, He was resurrected, not as a ghost, not as spirit, in human flesh. His heart literally stopped beating. His blood stopped flowing. And then it started beating again physically. But then He ascended into heaven and is no longer with us. But when He left, He gave us these words in Matthew 28, verse 20, some of the last words to his disciples and to all believers before he ascended into heaven, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm leaving, but I'll always be with you. This is not some sentimental statement that your grandfather tells you on his deathbed. 
Jesus Christ is literally with us. And then John 16, 7, also from Jesus, John 16, 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's good that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, capital H, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Who's Him? Who's the Helper? The Holy Spirit. We know that though they are equal and submit to one another, the Holy Spirit is God, very God. He is equal with God the Father and God the Son, though He submits to the will of the Father and the Son. And He, His role, is perhaps the most active on a practical level, in our consciences, in our minds, and in our lives. He helps unbelievers see so that they can repent. He convicts us of our sin. And so, we know that Jesus Christ is here empowering us, helping us to live the way we are supposed to live. And of course, the Holy Spirit is helping us to live the way we're supposed to live and convicts us and guides us away from the way that we may be living that is not how we should be living. But I want you to also understand the contexts of these two passages that I just read for you. In John 16, where Jesus says, it's better that I go because when I go, I'm going to send the helper, he continues and says this in verses 8 through 11, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And, w- and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. That is, Satan. Okay? And so, even in God's plan of salvation and helping the world see the truth of their sin, it is the Holy Spirit that is doing that. And Matthew 28 And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is how he finishes off what we know as the Great Commission, the call to make disciples and to teach the Word of God. In other words, his promise to always be with us, his promise to send the Holy Spirit who is now here with us on earth, always existed from eternity past, but his special role in the church age in believers' lives and in the world was initiated when he was sent. All of this is within the context specifically of gospel preaching and more generally of how we are to live our lives not only as evangelists, but as also as Christians living out the gospel. And so, when we talk about prophecy of Christ coming, we have to connect it to everything in His life, including His ascension and His promise to always be with us and to send the Holy Spirit because we are to live a certain way and we can't, though we are saved now, but God, very God, helps us live the way we are supposed to. We know what to do, and we have God's help.
Statement number three. If God fulfilled His promise to send the Messiah, He will fulfill His promise to send Him again. If God the Father fulfilled His promise to send the Messiah, He will fulfill His promise to send Him again. In the Scriptures, there are two comings of Christ that we have promised and prophesied. One has happened for us, though it was still future for the majority of human history. One is yet to occur. The first coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, the Christmas Christ, not only shows God's faithfulness to His Word, but also His power to do what He has promised. We know God's power is limitless. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. But think about it on a practical level. The first coming, the birth of Jesus Christ, was more of a miracle than the second coming of Christ will be. Let me explain. What we read about in His second coming in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God comes in many ways as He is, as the Holy Judge, as the Holy One, as the righteous Redeemer. In other words, He just steps out of heaven as He always been from, as He always has been from eternity past. He's just coming down and doing what He always is and was planning to do. At His first coming, Philippians 2 tells us He had to set aside what He has been and still is from eternity past. He had to empty Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and taking on human flesh and now experiencing things that he never had to experience before as the eternal God living in eternity past. Like what? Physical pain? Physical exhaustion? Being hungry? Being tired? Soiling himself as a child? Blistered feet? needing to take naps on the boat when his disciples are freaking out because of the storm. He never experienced that before. We are told in the Psalms that he is a God who never wearies or tires, never slumbers or sleeps. And so all of that to say, if he can, did, and is willing to do all of that, then the second coming as powerful and frankly terrifying as it will be, all of it that it entails is a piece of cake. The first time he came with a whimper, just a handful of people knew. It was purposely done in secret. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't even born in the finest inn. He was born in a manger with babies, to again to fu- with animals rather, again to fulfill prophecies of his meek and lowly and humble birth as we saw. In Isaiah 53, no stately form, nothing to write home about, right? People were confused. Joseph wanted to put her away because she was pregnant before they had relations. This wasn't this big fanfare. Yes, there were the appropriate gifts. Yes, there were people who were told, but it was just a few people. 
a little bit of a whimper, a whisper. When he comes again, the world will know it. He will come with a bang. There will be trumpet sounds. There will be flashes of lightning. There will be millions who instantaneously disappear. So, in light of his first coming with a view toward his second coming, we are to live properly. We live gospel-centered lives, but we must also live as those who do not belong here, especially because the end times have been initiated. We are to live as foreigners whose king will return to take us home. Now, this has always been the case for God's people, but more so now. We understand that there is a specific number of years that we call the specific end times, right? The rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, the thousand-year reign, all of those things. But in a broader perspective, what we are living now as initiated by Jesus Christ is what we call the church age, and the church age is the beginning of the end. The end times as we know it is just the final and extremely dramatic chapter. We're kind of in a holding pattern, but we're in a pattern. We're in flight. Before Christ came, these times hadn't even taken off yet. And with Jesus Christ coming the first time, it solidifies that we are now in the countdown until He comes again. The countdown could not begin until the prophecies of His birth were fulfilled. So we are 2,000 years into the countdown. And we need to live more than ever as if He is coming to take us home. We're going to talk about this more in depth in a couple weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's recommendation is we are supposed to live so much as if He can come now that the singles are not to get married. Those who rejoice are to live as if they don't rejoice. Those who mourn are to live as if they are not mourning. Those who are married are to live as if they are not married. That doesn't mean ditch all of those things, but marriage, rejoicing, mourning, that's all worldly. Those are all things of the world. And we are to live as if we are standing at the train station knowing the train is coming. We don't know when but we know it has left the station. The world is passing away. It has been initiated, the beginning of the end. And we understand from the verses, various verses, the idea of us being visitors, foreigners, aliens, ambassadors, guests, as Martin Luther says, in this world. As such, we make use of it so we can survive for ministry, but we do not hold on to it tightly. We don't hold on to it as if this is our forever home. When I was living in Albania, uh, you've probably heard this before, right? I've heard this uh, in regards to uh, Mexicans in Mexico. I've heard this in regards to uh, the Chinese. This is definitely also true in Albania. 
right? Why is the church starting so late? Oh, everyone's on Albanian time. We're on Mexican time. We're on Chinese time. Think people show up when they show up. One of the challenges, I believe, in all of those cultures is the unpredictability of traffic and, frankly, the fact that you walk in a lot of places. You don't just get in a car or even a bus. And though it's probably not a good example, church always starts on time, but let's say we would have someone over for dinner. We wouldn't know what they would come, when they would come. If we say uh, dinner's at 8, many of you know Europeans eat later, especially in the summer when it's hot. Most people don't have air conditioning, and so cranking on an oven in a small apartment is no good. And so we don't know when they'd show up, 9, sometimes 10. My Albanian friends would say, you've you got to understand, when you say be there at 8, that's when they're going to start getting ready. Put on their makeup, find their clothes, get their shoes, get their car out of the parking lot, which don't even try to picture normal parking lots in America. It could take them an hour of honking their horn and finding their neighbors who have all blocked them in, six cars deep. So we, we had a friend once, and they, they just had a, it was a kind of the, the apartment building went around, and there was like one entrance to, to park, and so they all parked there. She came down with her big stroller, couldn't fit in the tiny elevator, got all the kids ready, got the stroller down, walked it down three flights of stairs, went out. The cars were parked so tight she couldn't even get the stroller through, did the whole thing backwards. But if they call, say, we just left our house, you still don't know exactly how long they'll be there, especially if you don't know where they live, how long it'll take for them to walk there, if they're going to stop along the way and buy an obligatory uh, dessert to bring to your dinner or whatever it may be. But you know they're on the way. Jesus Christ's birth, the Christmas story, is that call. We don't know when He's going to arrive for a second coming. But we got the call, and he's on the way. So when you get that call, even though you know it may be 20 minutes, but it may be two hours, as the host, you don't just sit there watching TV till the doorbell rings. You start unwrapping things. You start pouring drinks. You start heating up dinner. You start cleaning the house if it's not already clean. You behave with an understanding that your guests are on their way. We live in this world because our king is coming to take us home. We're the guests. Stop living your lives as if you're planting roots in this world. When the king said, I already made the call, I told you, I've already started my trip to come get you. Why aren't you acting as someone ready to hop on the train? Make use of the world. Eat, nourish, enjoy, travel, whatever it may be. But don't love it. Don't hold on to it. Don't leave the train platform because you want a better meal or more stuff. Be on the alert, the Bible tells us.
so this Christmas, my gift to you as your pastor are these three statements in light of not just the prophecy fulfilled in Jesus' birth, but all prophecy. The celebration of the birth of Christ only has meaning because of the death of Christ. The fulfillment of the prophecy of Emmanuel is continued with both the Holy Spirit and Christ's presence. And if God fulfilled His promise to send the Messiah, He will fulfill His promise to send Him again. I understand intellectually as well as experientially that Christmas this year feels very different. It has crept up on us. It doesn't feel like Christmas. Time, because of COVID, has felt like it has stood still. I think there's many reasons for that, that we're surprised Christmas is here again more than every year when time flies. I think it's because some of us are not as motivated uh, to decorate to the same degree. We have neighbors, because of the financial situation they've been in since March, they have pulled back. Less money on decorations, no Christmas cards. They're just trying to save money. I'll be honest with you, one of my greatest joys is to uh, decorate our home Uh, for our annual Christmas party that my wife and my kids and I host. And there's just less motivation to do the hard stuff because I don't have you guys to share it with this year, which would have been yesterday if we had had one. And so there's a lot of things, and I think even though you may shop online anyways, just going to the malls and seeing the decorations, we just haven't been doing that. We have been going out and feeling the brisk air and seeing how our cities decorate and things like that. And perhaps hardest of all for many of you is not being able to see family. But there is one very big advantage this year. And the advantage is the same as the disadvantage. Because you are not running around to the malls and you have ordered online and some of you are not, are not even wrapping, you send those gifts straight to their recipients. You don't want to touch it. You don't want to contaminate. That's good. Because you don't have to clean up and, and uh, rearrange where the kids sleep for your guests who are coming in for several days for Christmas. Because you don't have to make extensive travel plans. And if you do... They involve quarantining and doing nothing either before or after. In other words, you are a lot less busy. You are a lot less stressed. You have a lot less to do. So let's meditate on these truths. With the free time that God has given us as we celebrate His birth, which He wants us to do, may we use that time not just to add more Christmas movies on our watch list, not just to 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 twiddle our thumbs or whatever it may be, but use our time this year above all years to meditate on the fact that though physically this Christmas is different, the reality is this Christmas is not different at all. Because the coming King has come. So let's celebrate that 
and let's worship him and let's meditate on these wonderful truths. And like as everyone is hoping because of COVID that 2021 will be better, may we have a better year because in the last week of 2020, we took the free time we had to truly meditate on what it means that Jesus Christ came and will come again. And may that fuel our 2021 and every year until that second prophecy comes true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this amazing plan. And though we enjoy the nativity scenes and the stories we read this time of year, we know that this story is not just thousands of years in the making. It has been recorded for us for thousands of years. What a privilege to know that this isn't just something someone made up because this baby was born, that the baby came and the story was made 2,000 years ago, but it was made in your mind from eternity past and recorded since the beginning of mankind from day one. Father, I pray that we would do just what we were talking about a minute ago, that we would not sit around lamenting at how different and how sad we are because we can't see family or friends or whatever it may be, but may we take the time to meditate deeply, deeper than perhaps we ever have before into your word, into our understanding of our own salvation and rejoice because of all of those cliches, the reason for the season, the true meaning of Christmas, but may we truly study and meditate on those realities and may it completely, radically change our lives on this earth. For those who have joined us who don't know you, may you do a great work in their lives this Christmas season and bring them to a saving knowledge of you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, family. Let's stand as we